All right. You can turn to Matthew chapter 19. I think it's been kind of interesting just the way that these chapters have set up. We kind of have had a little series within a series. So like we keep working through the whole book of Matthew, but I really feel like these last, the, the, the last two sermons that I preached and the sermon that we're going to go through today, I think really kind, I think this sermon kind of caps off this one major theme that we've been talking about through the end of the second half of Matthew chapter 18 and into 19 today. And that's this idea that above all, we are a people who God is calling to be reconciled. Reconciled to himself, reconciled to one another. We're not a group of people who who keep divisions up and who try to separate ourselves from people or let things linger where there is sin present between us. We're a people who are reconciled. We're a people who God calls to come back together to to really, to really see what it is that he's already accomplished in bringing about the possibility for reconciliation, and, and we fight for that at all cost. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about that in a couple of different ways. One, one as we've approached uh, a brother or a sister who's in sin and tried to reconcile that sin, try to call them to repentance so that that sin doesn't need to linger in between us so that there's nothing that just kind of sits out there, feels uncomfortable, but we're too afraid to kind of address it. And then last week, we talked about the idea of being that person who has, who has brought that charge and then seeing our brother or sister repent, say, I realize what I have done wrong and I want to turn and I want to be different. I want to be changed. I want to be more like Christ and I recognized that fault that was within me. And we, as, that, as the person calling someone to, forget, to repentance, are also called to forgive. We're called to be willing to let that go. And we talked about what that looks like. But what if they keep going right back into that same sin over and over and over again? And Jesus says, I don't care. That's not the point. The point is that we are a forgiving people. We are a reconciling people. I mean, that's probably why we put it in the name of the church, right? Because we want to be defined as a people reconciled by Christ to one another, but even more so are becoming about the business of reconciliation, which is what he called us to. Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the work of reconciliation. And I think that's kind of twofold. I think that's us taking the gospel to people and trying to show people how it is that they can be reconciled to Christ as well. But also, we've been given this task of we got to get along. we got to get together. we got to remove the, the, the icky things that kind of get in between us and kind of make it difficult for us to live together as believers in whatever relationship it is that he's called us together in. Whether that's, whether that's as, as friends, whether that's as community groups, whether that's as spouses, I almost said whether it be as, just because, see, we went on a trip last week, uh, the Bennetts and Tiff and I, and the one thing that we realized, the, the, the one big take home that I got was that Caleb says whether it be a lot, all the time, and it apparently eats away at Brenna's soul. So from now on, whenever he says whether it be, you can, you can just smile at him and know that that's been spoiled for the whole church now. So, that, I mean, that really was one of the great take-homes, I felt, from that whole conference. That being said, um, so we went to the Gospel Coalition's National Convention, which, uh, this, was, this was the funniest, most ironic tweet that I saw the whole week. They said, it's basically Comic-Con for Calvinists, which is pretty funny. Uh, I don't think it is necessarily that, but there were a bunch of people with beards and tattoos walking around. So if that tells you anything, if that tells you anything about the crowd that we were running in, I wore my flannel today just because... It was in my soul that I had to wear a plaid flannel shirt for some reason. I don't know what it was. 
But we have, I, have, I still have so much to process from that. But the biggest take-home, the biggest thing that I think they were trying to teach us about and try to really get us excited about is just how amazing the truth of the gospel is and how, and how perfect the, perfectly the gospel fits into every single message that we're given to, we're given by Jesus. So, so in every single thing that we look at, whether it's, whether it's forgiveness, repentance, or today where we're going to talk about divorce and, and Jesus' teaching on that, the gospel is present in all of this. And we need to have such a high, big view of what, how amazing the gospel is and how perfectly represented throughout Scripture it is. So, and today's no exception. So, uh, Matthew chapter 19, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just read all of the verses that we're going to talk about today, um, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll get going. So, Matthew 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? It is better not to marry. But he said to him, to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Okay, so obviously we're going to be talking about the idea of divorce and Jesus' teaching on divorce. Before we get too heavily into it, I just want to give you a couple of qualifiers for things that I'm thinking about as we enter into this, uh, just so we're kind of all on the same page. First, uh, I am aware that there are those of us here at CRC who have been affected by divorce either personally or in their family, Um, and so... To those of you who might have really, really strong emotional connections to this topic, I just say, hang in here with me, and I know that some of the things might be hard to hear, but I really think by the end we're going to all get to a really good place with this. Uh, Two, based on this text and others, there are allowable instances for divorce in Scripture. I'm not going to focus on that. I'm not going to focus on what little caveats he leaves in there for there to be allowable instances of divorce. I'm not going to make that the major focus of what I'm talking about today. But suffice it to say, I do think that there are scripturally sound places where God gives right justification for divorce. Three, I would never, nor would I think we, I'm speaking for Caleb and Dad on this, we would never encourage anyone to stay with a spouse who's abusive or at the very least threatening. Though that doesn't necessarily mean you should get divorced. Does that make sense as I, as I qualify that that way? Like, I'm not saying 
oh, you're in a bad relationship. Well, the Bible says you got to go back to him. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what I'm saying at all. I, I would, we would never say that. Uh, but there, there are more levels to what should be the follow-up to that. And, and four, uh, there's more here than just a theological debate about who can and who cannot get divorced and remarried. Um, there's more to that at stake in these verses. In the end, um, and this is really the direction I want to take this today, this is a gospel issue. This is, this is, a, this is a church unity, reconciliation to Jesus, reconciliation to one other issue. This isn't, this isn't just a, so I'm in this relationship and I want to get out. Does the Bible say it's okay? So what steps do I have to go through for you to let me do this thing that I want to do so that I can, so that I can be divorced? That's not the conversation. That's not really what is at the heart. That's not really what's at stake in these verses. And we could sit here and I could go through, and I, I, I was talking about this while I was prepping this. Like I wrote a paper on this subject. It was the last paper I wrote before I graduated. Um, and so I have lots and lots of thoughts on all of the details of who can and who can't get divorced. And we can have a really technical, theological discussion about that. But I don't think that's really where I want to go today. I think I more want to focus on the gospel issue that is at stake here. I will say, though, so why, so let's just, just so we understand, we have a, so we have a general understanding of why was this qualification given by Moses in the law to Israel? Why is it that he even gave them this option to begin with? Because, because it's, it's there, right? When the Pharisees bring it, they say, Moses said this, and Jesus said, yes, he did. But why, what was, what was the heart behind that? Primarily, it was, it was given to Israel to protect the women who were being just simply dismissed because either their husband got bored or they just wanted to go have a new wife or whatever. Because, because in their culture, and we've talked about this before, if you were married, you've left your father, you've left your, your family, if you then end up divorced, if you end up on your own, you had no means to provide for yourself. And if there was no allowable instance for divorce in their culture, then no one would ever feel safe remarrying a divorced woman because, oh, she must have done something wicked. She must have done something horribly evil when maybe it was, and more than likely, it was the evil in the heart of her ex-husband. And so they wouldn't see, that. they would say, oh, we got to stay away from her. And there would be no one who would be culturally allowed, socially able to go uh, remarry and care for this woman. She'd be left on her own and she would be, I mean, think, think of the situation that, that Ruth was in uh, after her husband died and she's kind of on her own. She has no way to provide for herself. It's that kind of desperate place that, that Moses was trying to protect the women in Israel from. He didn't want them to be simply just let go and then forgotten by society. That's the reason he gave them this, this allowed uh, version of divorce so that they could have some sort of formal document saying, no, look, I am divorced for this reason. I am able to be remarried. So in, in a sense, it was, it, was, it was offering mercy to, in a sense, the, victim of self, the victims of selfish men, primarily. That's not every case, but that's primarily why that was given. So I've got a couple of thoughts. I've got, I think, you can tell I listen to a bunch of people who like preach with like really well-structured sermons this week. So I have three points. I didn't put numbers on them, though, so 
they're not like technically points, but I have three sentences that I'm going to read to you. Uh, here's the first one. God hates divorce because at its core, it is a representation of the broken relationship between us and God. I'll say it again. God hates divorce because it's a representation of the broken relationship between us and God. So, like, if you, if you look at, like, divorce law in our country today, there's this thing called no-fault divorce, uh, which I think is a perfect representation of kind of where our society has gone. It's like, if neither of us really want to make a big stink out of this, we can just get divorced, no problem. Nobody has to prove anything. Nobody has. And we call it no-fault divorce. But here's, there, there's a lie just in calling something a no-fault divorce. Because, because present in any divorce, there is, no, there is no morally neutral divorce. Let me say that. Let me say it again. There's no morally neutral divorce. At any divorce, all divorce, is at some point the result of sin in someone's life. It may not be sin on the part of both parties, but there is sin present. The reason for that divorce is the result of sin. There is no such thing as a no-fault divorce. Also within that, when Jesus is, 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 is affirming this allowance for divorce in this text, he is also at the same time not requiring divorce. See, look, let's look at that verse again. So he says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He's saying it can happen, but he, notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say in the case of a sexually immoral spouse, you must get divorced. He's not requiring divorce. He's allowing it and then remarriage when a divorce takes place in a biblically sound way. And that's, that's honestly what's really at stake here. It's not just divorce. It's divorce and remarriage. Because, because if you got divorced, rightly, he's saying you're eligibly remarried. But he's saying anybody who, who's outside of God's will on this and they remarry, they are committing adultery against their spouse because God still sees them as one. He still sees them connected as one unit. So, so Jesus isn't requiring divorce. He's allowing it. But again, he's not requiring it. Uh, I'm going to read a bunch of different passages of Scripture. If you want to try to flip around with me, you are more than welcome to. If not, it is going to be up on the screen. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 2. And in Malachi chapter 2, we kind of get this picture of how God really does feel about divorce. So I'm going to read Malachi chapter 2. This is verses 13 through 16. This is God in the middle of speaking about speaking judgment upon the people because of the sin in their life. So we're picking up with the second thing. So that's why he's saying that. He's in the middle of a longer list. But he says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor in your, from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, 
says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. I think this is a really hard but honest statement by God of what it is that he's feeling when he sees, when he sees a marriage being torn apart. He's saying it's not just that you got married. It's not just that you had a ceremony. It's not just that one of you changed your name. It's that you became, you went from being two individuals to one person. And not just one person. You were given, what is it he says here? You were given in, where is it he says? Verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. So as they're being knitted, as we're being knitted together, as we are married, we're also being knitted together with the Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit is there too. And to pull that apart is to tear apart the, like the, the whole central piece, which is that Jesus, the Spirit, is there with us when we are tied together. So it's not just that God says, don't do it, it's bad. It's that he says, it hurts me if you tear these things apart. Because I am in this with you. I am a part of this with you. I am tied into this with you. And as we tear that apart, he, it, it, not that God forgets things because he, he's God, but it, I, I, it's almost as though every time he sees these relationships being torn apart that his spirit is a part of, it's almost like reopening that same wound that he had when he was like perfect in perfect communion with his you know prized creation Adam and Eve and they're in the garden and they tear all that away and that relationship is severed and he has to like send them away and he can't be with them anymore because of sin present in their relationship now and i don't think that that was an enjoyable thing for god to send them away i don't think it was like oh man i'm so excited they're gone they were so annoying no that's not how he felt he, loves, he loved Adam and Eve, and he wanted to continue to be with them, and then that sin continues to put this chasm in between them that can't be overcome by their own doing anyways. And I think that what he's looking at in divorce is the similar feeling. It's this idea that like you're in this together. You're so committed to one another. You have this, like, this, this perfectly... You've perfectly become this one single unit that God doesn't see as individuals anymore. You are now this unit. And to tear that apart is offensive to God and painful. So that's point one. God hates divorce because it's a representation of the broken relationship between us and him. Sentence number two, not point number two, sentence number two. And this is, I think, the big, one of the biggest points that Jesus makes in this whole section. By looking back to creation for our picture of God's intent for marriage, we also declare our faith in God's pre-law promises. And I told Caleb I was going to do this. I'm just stealing parts from Guy's sermons from this last week. So if you want to turn to Galatians chapter 3, you can. And it's probably just because I sat and listened to a whole lot of Galatians this week, but I think this makes a really makes this point really clearly. I'll say that point again before I read. Looking back to creation so that we can better understand God's intent for marriage. In doing that, we also declare our faith in God's pre-law promises. What do I mean by declaring our faith in God's pre-law promises? Well, the Galatians were suffering through 
they, they'd been saved, but now some people were coming in and distracting them and trying to say, no, 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 you don't just need faith, you need to do this and this and this as well. You need the, these pieces of the law to help you really be in a good place with God. God, God, will, God will actually accept you once you're circumcised or once you, once you go back to these things. And Paul's building this whole case about saying how foolish it is to take this thing you've been given, grace, just through your faith in Jesus, how silly it is to take that and then think, oh, but I've got to do this on top of, on top of all of that. On top of what Jesus did, I also need to do this. And so he says in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 2 through 9, I'm going to pick up here in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know that, that, that it is those of hmm. know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Actually, and I'm going to go ahead, I'm just going to skip down real quick to verses 17 and 18, just to kind of complete this thought. Verse 17, this is what I mean. So in case you were confused, this is what Paul's trying to say. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise, that is the promise that he made to Abraham, to bless the nations, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So here's the point that I'm trying to make. And here's the point that I think Jesus is making as well in Matthew 19. He's saying, yes, 100%. Moses did give you this, this teaching on divorce. He did give you this way that it is allowed under the law for you to get divorced. Absolutely. He is not denying that at all. But, he's, but look at what the point he's trying to say. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then they say, But Moses said, The law says it's okay. The law gives us this freedom to do this. Why would he say that? And he says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. So what Paul is saying in Galatians again, and I think reinforces what Jesus is teaching here, is that, yes, this law was given to you, but this law was given to you as a result of your sin. We would not need the law if we were not sinful, broken people. The law reveals to us our areas where we are broken and where we are sinful and where we are going against what God wants. Uh, I, I loved this quote. There was a, one of the guys who spoke this last week. His name was Peter Adam. Uh, both, both mine and Caleb's wives both just wanted to pinch his cheeks. They thought he was like, he was like this little, little short, old, 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 old Australian guy. 
but, but he, he said this. He said, the law is like training wheels on a bicycle. You don't need them once you know how to ride. Like he's saying, we were given this promise by God from the beginning. Here's how I'm going to save you. Gave it to Abraham. He said, Abraham, here's how I'm going to save the world. But until we were ready for that promise to really be answered, he kind of gave us this, this set of training wheels, this thing to kind of help us get by. He gave us, he gave us the law so that we could kind of understand a bit of what that was going to look like once Jesus got here. The law was never the ultimate thing. We've been saying that since, we've been saying that for months here in Matthew. The law was never the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution was always Jesus, was always grace, was always God coming down and doing something about sin. Because, because our trying to fulfill the law was never going to work. It just was never going to be the thing that ultimately fixed it. So what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, yes, Moses gave you the law, but way before that, the thing that's way more important is that God made this statement. Here's how I desire marriage to work. You get married. Done. That's it. Before the fall even happened, God instituted exactly what his view was on marriage. The two come together and that is it. We needed the law because we were already broken. And it shows us just how broken we are. And I think that the little caveat that Moses gave them on divorce is just another piece of that. It's him, and that's what Jesus says. Because of your hardness of heart, because you're broken, because you're sinful, because these things are going to be present, here's a way that God is going to allow you to kind of work through that. But that's not the point. Right? He's, it's basically saying, don't get hung up on the fact that Moses gave you this promise, or that Moses gave you this rule. Right? What do we just read in Galatians 3? He said, like, the law came 430 years after what God originally intended for Abraham. Right? You know, and I was thinking about this as I was kind of studying, and then this thought just kind of hit me last night. We always talk about you know, new covenant versus old covenant, and how... And how the Old Testament's this Old Covenant, and then Jesus came, we get this New Covenant. But essentially, the whole part about Jesus coming, that's the Old Covenant. That's the original covenant. That's the original promise that God made. That's the one that really counts. And that's the one that he made all the way back in Genesis 3.15, right? When he said, yeah, you've broken this, but I'm going to fix it. When he made that original promise, that's the real covenant that we're under. That's the real covenant that saves us. That's the real covenant that fixes us. When he goes to Abraham and he says, through you all the nations are going to be blessed, he's not talking about because, because in 430 years I'm going to send a guy who's going to give you a law. That's not what the promise was to Abraham. He's saying, through you my son is going to come and he's going to be the one who takes care of all of this. Sure, in the middle there's going to be this law, but don't get hung up on that law. That law is not what's going to save you. Don't, don't approach it the way the Pharisees are approaching it and say, oh, but look, we've got this law so we can do this thing. Jesus is saying, your heart's broken, and that's why that law's there. But ultimately, I want you to, when you get married, you're staying together. You're in this together. You don't, you don't get out. And so by having a bit more of a grace-based view of marriage, we're actually placing our focus more rightly on the work that Jesus would do and the promise that God made to Abraham than we are putting our hope in the law that Moses gave us and saying, look, we've got this way out of marriage. 
Does that make sense? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, by virtue of the way that we try to approach whether or not we can be divorced, we're saying which thing we'd rather hold on to more tightly, the cross or the law. And here's why this matters for all of us. And, here's what, and I think this is kind of what perfectly sums up the last three weeks in Matthew. Sentence number three. The way that we love one another and reconcile is a reflection of Jesus' completed work in us that God has promised from the beginning. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of all of this. That's what we talked about last week when he said, you got to forgive because I've already forgiven you so much. The fact that you can be, be, be intimately tied to another sinner and continue to reconcile above all else is a more powerful telling of the gospel than any little piece of paper that I could give you that has five questions that you can go ask somebody else. The fact that you can get married to somebody, they can do the most horrible thing, and you still say, we got to work this out. Jesus is too important for us to just, just bail on this thing. The fact that because Jesus' work is already completed, because he already went to the cross, because he already made possible our reconciliation to God, that's what makes this possible. I'm not saying that this is easy. I'm not saying that we can do this on our own. It's because Jesus has already done, he's already laid the groundwork. He's already accomplished all that he needs to accomplish. That's why reconciliation is possible. That's why we can be tied intimately together with another sinner and we can still get through it even as bad as it may seem at times. If you want to turn to 1 John, I told you we're going all over the place today. First John chapter 2. I'm going to pick up here in verse 7. John says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Again, just reinforcing this idea. This is how it's always been. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he's saying it is new because Jesus has already now accomplished what the original promise said was going to happen. So it's the, old, it's the old promise, but we're seeing it new now that it's happened. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, that we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what what John is saying is, and this is the point that I was saying earlier, this is why divorce, remarriage, this whole conversation isn't just about divorce and remarriage. This is a gospel issue. Because our ability to love people so fiercely that we desire reconciliation at all costs above everything else because there is no thing that someone can do that's any worse than my sin between me and God. There's nothing that anybody can do to us that is more offensive to us and less deserving of forgiveness than anything that God's forgiven that we've ever done. And what he's saying is, and here's why it's a gospel issue. Because, because if you don't have that kind of love in you, you don't get it. You're not in. You're not saved. You don't know Jesus. You don't know the love that he has for you. Because if you did, you would be the kind of person who would fight above everything else for reconciliation between anybody. That's why no matter what could happen in a relationship, and you may say, but they did this, or they've done this, or what about this sin that they've done? That's really bad. What's the worst thing that you could think about that somebody could do to you? Well, I guarantee you that whatever it is that you've done to God is equally offensive to him. And yet he's willing to, by his grace, and I use that word intentionally, grace. Like, it's not like you've earned this. It's not like this is something that you've done well enough and now he loves you and so he's going to give you all these things that he wants to give you. No, he's giving it to you in spite of you. You say, this seems hard. Maybe it seems even impossible to think, how can I reconcile with that person? Or how can I keep this relationship together? Everything in me is trying to tear this apart, and I want to let it. That seems impossible. Think, think of Hosea, right? Hosea is the best example I have, where God says, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And what do you think is going to happen when you go and marry a prostitute? She is going to leave you and start sleeping with other guys. And then what does God say to Hosea? Now, I want you to go buy her back out of slavery and bring her back in and she's going to be your wife again. Why does he say that? Because he says, that's exactly what I'm doing with my children. They are my children. I have called them to me. They are my people. He's talking about Israel and Hosea, but Israel's a bigger picture for us as the church today. And he's saying, you're going to be my people. I'm going to make you mine. And you're going to go off and you're going to do some crazy things. You're going to worship some other gods You're going to serve your own desires. You're going to go after all of these things. And no matter what, I'm still going to go back and I'm going to buy you back. Through the blood of my son, I'm going to buy you back out of your slavery and I'm going to bring you back to myself and you're going to continue to be my people. He's not going to send us away, right? What is Jesus' example? Jesus' example is, unless there is some sort of sexual immorality, you can't get divorced. Hosea. That is sexual immorality. I don't know that I need to explain more in detail why that's sexual. I think that makes sense. I think we get that, right? Like they're married and she goes off and works as a prostitute while they're married. That is sexual immorality. If you had questions about that, talk about that in community group. I'm sure people would love to hear your justification on that one. But here's the thing. She's doing that, but yet God doesn't say, all right, Hosea, now you've got your out, you can divorce her, and we can now show that this is how I intended for this sort of thing to work. No, that's not it. He says, now, go get her back. Bring her back, because that's what he does. That's how he approaches this, because he loves us. Still in 1 John 3.16, 
By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So yes, this is hard. Reconciliation, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is fun. I'm not saying you're going to really love this, being tied to other unbelievers who are wicked and sinful and say nasty things about you behind your back and hold grudges against you or try to tear, up, tear apart a relationship that you have with someone else. I'm not saying it's easy. But it wasn't easy for Jesus either when he wanted to have us back. It cost him his life. And we've already heard it said, we have to take up our cross daily and follow him. Like, reconciliation is hard. We have to die to ourselves for the sake of it. It might cost you a lot. It might cost you, like we said, reconciliation may cost you a relationship. It may cost you a friendship. It may cost you your reputation. It could cost you your job. It could cost you your life. It sure cost Jesus his. But it's worth it because he's worth it. It's worth fighting through all of the pain and all of the struggle. And I know all of you are sitting here thinking, but man, I've seen it happen this way, and I've seen this, and well, this is the situation. I know. I get that. I, I, I feel for you. Like, I don't want to make this sound simple and like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. It's going to be nothing. No, this is something. This is hard. This is difficult. It's gonna be, it could be painful. It could cost you a lot. But the gospel is at stake, and if we can become a people... who perfectly represent the truth of the gospel in the way that we reconcile with one another amidst whatever sin may be there. If we can be those people, if we can live like that, if we can be that tightly knit together with a portion of the Spirit being given to us right there, if we can live as a people filled with the Holy Spirit, so tied together that, that we'll fight through whatever it may be, that's the gospel. That's what shouts the gospel the loudest. Let's pray.